Uh, hello and welcome to the one and only Scrap Podcast. I'm your host and we're here to delve into the intriguing world of disarmament and diplomacy. Join us as we untangle the web of uh, global politics, explore uh, riveting stories, and meet the people who are working tirelessly to create a safer, more peaceful world. So whether you're an expert in the field or just curious about the topic, we've got you covered. Together, we'll break down barriers and build bridges. So let's get ready to scrap and let the conversation begin. And with that, welcome, Philip. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ben, for having me. I'm excited to be here. Of course. Yeah, no, it's it's fantastic. We, we attempted to do this some time ago, um, and right. this is our second attempt. So it should be a good little conversation that we have. Um, yeah. Before we get going, though, uh, would you be able to introduce yourself? So, yeah, my name is Philip. Um, I was a research assistant at Scrap. Oh, well, still am really, um, but I'm no longer based in London, Brussels, working at a think tank on Europe-Asia relations. But um, uh, in my capacity as a Scrap research assistant, um, I've worked on uh, projects specifically looking at um, OSINT, so open source intelligence, and the role that can play in, um, in, for example, the establishment of a verification system um, and compliance system as part of a disarmament treaty. Um, and I learned a lot from some really interesting experts. Um, and more recently now, I've been involved with Scraps in conversation with arms, uh, the arms industry uh, series, which will be kicking off next week, actually. Um, so um, yeah, so it's, it's really great um, to be able to um, contribute in the podcast. No, yeah, fantastic. It sounds like you you really are actually spread out across quite a few different things. It's actually really, really impressive. Um, I'd like to dial it back a little bit to talk about the open source intelligence um, okay. and what exactly that is and, and what you're doing for that, because it does sound like a really important and um, crucial area, especially when, like you said, we're talking about variation um, and compliance. So tell us a little bit about uh, open source intelligence. Yeah, so first of all, I, I definitely recommend um, anyone listening to this to, to check out the recent publication uh, by um, Henrietta Wilson and um, other members of the team at Scrap on the research they compiled from um, speaking with open source intelligence practitioners. Um, and this was a process that I was part of essentially at Scrap. We organized a series of webinars where open source intelligence practitioners, so essentially people that would use open access, open source um, uh, platforms like Google Earth, for example, public databases, um, whether that's for looking at um, you know, uh, data in uh, transactions that have occurred between you know, within trade, uh, for example, port databases where you can track the uh, the coming ins and goings of, of shipments, for example, um, use of you know social media as well to look at you know, photographic evidences, things like this. Um, so, use researchers that use this um, this information to then um, put it um, in a in a context where they can analyze perhaps the truthfulness behind certain statements, can find the source of um, activities um, and can generally use it to ensure um, a level of verification, compliance, and um, accountability. Um, mm. So 
So that was really interesting to have those discussions. We had a series of um, coffee, virtual coffee meetings where uh, we had youth from Scrap, including myself, talking with experts and then even talking with the weapons inspectors uh, who went to um, Iraq in during the first or just before the first um, the first war there um, and who had, um, well, in, in many ways, been verifying the physical um, locations where weapons or chemical weapons were set to be based. And so it was really exciting bringing everyone together with that. Um, and yeah, a lot of our content is, is on the Scrap website. So definitely check that out if you're very interested in really how accountability can be ensured mm. in any kind of arms control treaty in this modern generation that we live in, where as well as our director, Dan Flesch, likes to say, you know, you can't really hide anymore. There's, there's no secrets in many ways. Um, so much information, so much data is accessible to so many different people, including members of the public like us. Mm. It actually raises a lot of questions, though, because it's interesting, because you said behind a treaty. And yeah. my concern would be with that when we're, we're going to talk about this later in terms of um, the Asian specific, uh, Pacific theater, but with China and, and, and North Korea, but primarily focusing right. on China, how can we really feel like that information that we're getting is, is truly reliable when right. these nations have, I would assume, so many protections in place to, to try and prevent people from being able to see that kind of information right. and that trade that's going on in, in those countries. So Google Maps, I can understand that, of course, that's how we discovered um, North Korea restarting their um, nuclear uh, graded, you know, their nuclear powerhouses, so to speak. Right. My brain is escaping me right now. But with China right. as well, it's also how we discovered their new missile servers that they've put up all in the, in the desert. Right. So I can understand how we can use that to see what they're building and, and what's right. been built all over the world. Um, but to track trade into these countries of certain components, I imagine that's quite difficult. I mean, essentially one simple answer to that is that because trade is a, a two-way thing, mm. um, normally it's with, well, I mean, sometimes it is between China and North Korea, and these ones are definitely more difficult to trace, but in many ways when that is also involving you know, third parties, um, that information tends to be more accessible. Um, but of course, there are yeah various complications to it, and it, it's sometimes difficult even for companies, uh, banks, for example, to know whether they're dealing with um, you know transactions that potentially are funding the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction because with the creation of you know shell companies um, and the ability to kind of hide, transactions or hide um, origins or sources um, it's it's very difficult to, to follow up on these but again with the proliferation of technology and mm. the potential role that even um, AI could play in uh, sifting through the data that is available which is yeah it, it's again it's a, it's a two-way thing it's a lot of it a lot of business is reliant on um, you know countries like like the US and like you know even you know Singapore within the Southeast Asia, um, these things are bigger than you know just um, just North Korea or, or China areas that might be mm. more difficult to access data. Mm. So there's there's always ways around it. It's just about getting creative. 
True. I know uh, we, we, I'm going to mention Henrietta again because, I mean, she does so much, so it's hard not to mention right. her. But um, she's also been speaking to me recently because of right. the RUSI project, which is using open yeah. source research to um, scope potential like chemical and weapons of proliferation in North Korea. So I imagine there are, is right. a lot of work being done there nonetheless. And I imagine, yes. as you said, there are multiple avenues to try and track um, yes. any kind of trade that's done. Yeah, trade is a two-way yeah. streak, so you're bound yeah. to find out eventually, I suppose. There's a lot, it's kind of hard not to have that much involvement when you're trading uh, so right. many important um, parts. Okay, really interesting. I think um, another thing, if we're looking about kind of the Asian Pacific data, um, yes. and we're looking kind of at China, which I think we're going to focus a bit more on today, do you think this increase of information and visibility then would play a more positive role in diplomatic practices with China regarding potential, um, mm. you know, uh, treaties and, and whatnot with with arms proliferation. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, so what's really interesting is that at the core of well, U.S.-China tensions really, and then everything that springs off from that mm. is, I think, a fundamental lack of trust mm. and breakdown in communication and. Um, I guess, linked to that um, transparency. Um, and what's quite interesting, though, about that is that it's even on the very like high track one diplomatic level. So we're not just talking really? about not being able to um, access, you know, more niche areas of, of data and, you know, the difficulty of sovereign control over data and, how that's you know destabilizing or disrupting relations. We're just fundamentally talking about these like clashes of um, ideals and I guess spheres of influence and um, visions of the you know the, the world order. I mean, my experience here, uh, we get a lot of um, delegates um, or um, uh, representatives from the mission of China to the EU and mm. to other places. And one of the key messages that comes up again and again is um, the idea of the US hegemony and its role in international relations and uh, you know, the effects that this has. So there's this clear idea still there that there is um, um, that there is a fundamental structural issue within the international relations, uh, you know, day-to-day -day running of the system um, that is creating um, an impasse. And that's scary because if you're dealing with um, perceptions um, of one side has of the other, then um, then the dialogue becomes becomes very difficult unless gestures, acts of goodwill, um, steps in the direction of building trust are taken. Um, mm. Otherwise, it just is a downward spiral. Um, so, so yeah, so I mean, really this accessing the open source data is kind of like, it, it would be, yeah, it, in, in this kind of context, a, a like a treaty that uses, even if it uses this very uh, reliable, um, well, to even get to that stage where you're creating a disarmament treaty, to be honest, mm. you really need to deal with it at the more structural uh, level. Mm, no, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, but it is because this distrust that we're talking about, it's, it's, right. it's, it's present everywhere. It's it, in the United yeah. Nations, it's deep seated. Yeah. And, and I think one of the reasons there's a lot of issues between these powerhouse nations, let's look at the veto, for example, 
I mean, yeah. how the veto is abused and how people right. can just bypass certain certain rulings and pushings that they don't want to have. And I think it's almost like you know, pocket veto is a term we hear often, where there is a right. definite divide where we have right. China. If we look at the veto members, where we have China and Russia on one side, the United States, France, and England on the other side, and using the veto to block things, block information, block certain things is is almost yes. abused to an extent. So with something that's so deep seated yeah. and this unwillingness to communicate, and we often hear, you know, hostile diplomacy as a as a yeah. as a phrase used when dealing with with you know America and China and, and North Korea and America and so on. Um do you do you believe that there is an actual avenue forward? Do you think it comes with right. time? How how can you see this kind of happening? Yeah, I mean, well, so really when you're dealing with international relations, you've got options um, and two big ones are the kind of unilateral moves, but also the multilateral um, moves as well. And then um, on the unilateral side, there's, um, there's a host of steps that states can take to build or repair certain relationships, but equally to kind of exacerbate tensions. Um, but then, you know, on you've, you've got opportunities by creating spaces where at least conversations can start to happen, difficult conversations um, can start to happen. You have an opportunity to um, to repair um, damages or at least find windows to 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 see where you can get those win-win solutions get that same pageness um and one thing that scrap will be you know really pushing um next next year you know over the coming you know well, well, until it really happens but one thing which is gaining momentum now at scrap is calling for um, a special session on disarmament a fourth special session on disarmament to be held at the um, at the un um, and I mean, special sessions um, are quite rare. Um, there's only been a handful, and I think maybe 25 maximum. I can't remember exactly, but um, there have been three which have focused on disarmament. But I believe the last one was in the in the late 80s, mm. in the late 80s. Right. Um, and what's happened is that those kinds of spaces for talking about disarmament have become rather well polarized. Mm. Um, at, at this point, you know, the Conference of Disarmament, the MPT Review Conference, um, they have become quite um, dependent in some ways on the politics of, of the day. And that has, you know, you touched upon earlier, the, the role of the veto that becomes complicated then, yes, when the politics of the day includes members of the Security Council. Um, but really by forging, uh, by using the General Assembly, in particular, which is where the, the special session, what well, the special session includes, it's about bringing all states to the table and really focusing on, um, you know, a specific um, specific topic or a specific part of disarmament um, can create uh, like almost a separate space that's able to, you know, kind of refresh discussions and um, really look at everyone's core interests, um, bringing it away from um, perhaps you know, a few stakeholders to global set of stakeholders. Um, so these kinds of yeah, spaces, creating them, ensuring their existence can be very fruitful 
for those conversations um, and for that you know, trust uh, to be to be rebuilt. Um, mm. So so yeah, that's that's one way. Well, I think yeah. Well, no, I agree with you. It's almost necessary to have those conversations because yeah. at the moment, if you look at the general news cycle, which doesn't really go into the nitty gritty of why things are happening, but if you if you do peer into the general news cycle, it's just yeah. escalation almost. I mean, mm. we look at countless over the, even over the last month. There's been countless times where there's been clashes in the Taiwanese Strait or in Japan, where there's been right. uh, warnings of potential you know, tests going on nearby. Um, right. We always see uh, on, on all sides, America not willing to sit down, China not willing to sit down. Um, and you know, there's a standard idea that, which is certainly true, the more communication, the more conversation you can have between different parties yeah. often leads to better outcomes and better results. As long as the people who are at those conversations are reasonable people, you know, and I think <laughs> I, I mentioned reasonable people. What, what, what would you? How would you? What would reasonability look like to you? That's a good question. Well, we need. I, I mean, I can point to Dan as an example of a reasonable person you want sitting down at that table, and other people <laughs> who are in that space. I think um, ultimately, right. you know, leaders who have different. I don't want to say egos to live up to, but I don't know another word, right. or, you know, who have to remain strong and confident in the eyes of the general public, especially when they've sold that general public certain ideas, right. um, are going to be less likely to get down to the nitty gritty and have real conversations about why this needs to change. Right. So, yeah, yeah. So, certainly mm. cutting through the noise is yeah. important in that respect. Um, developing awareness and, um, learning more about certain realities that do mm. exist um, and not just like having perceptions leading uh, leading leading policy um, and speculations and uh, kind of an agenda as mm. the, the as leading policy but rather um, basing it off um, yeah of the realities that exist on the ground mm. and that's why research and I suppose you know open source intelligence and, and setting up a series where people can learn about this, but also encouraging researchers to delve into this and, and making that a, a possibility and having the funding for that is so important because ultimately, as with, with all things, when we're looking at science, engineering or anything, the people who really know the stuff are the people who need to have influence and swear over the, those kind of discussions and, and right. decisions. Um, right. But how realistic is that, that we can expect something like that in, in diplomacy and politics is, is another question. Um, right. And I think Scrap is stepping in, uh, well, they are stepping in the right direction. Every year we do hold um, a session yeah. of our own, where increasingly so we've had ambassadors come over and speak and people from different organizations come over and speak. And there's certainly traction growing. So going for another big push next year, yeah, we can certainly hope that more yeah. and more attention will continue to be attracted to this to activate a special yeah. session and to get that conversation yes. going yeah. um but i think once again my concern is is in that i keep on saying it ever since we mentioned it at the beginning asian pacific theater of things um right. this sense of escalation and and a general public's perception towards that region yeah. it's not overly positive and but how realistic is that is is that the is that right. the full truth or how what well, Mm. Yeah, I, I don't know if you did it on purpose or not, but fantastic lead up to another project that um, I know some of my colleagues at Scrapper working on, which is looking at the military balance 
Um, and now the military balance is something that's talked about a lot in policy making circles, um, really. And it's, it's also sometimes then used to, uh, in some ways, uh, affect public opinion. Because once you start talking about the weapons numbers, um, people, people do get worried. Mm. Um, but, um, the, you know, sometimes what is missed are the, you know, the ratios, um, or, you know, what is it, what does it really mean? Um, like what, what, what's actually happening behind, behind those ideas of, um, let's say, you know, China's building mm. more weapons, um, and increasing its arsenal, um, which is, yes, it's not a good thing, um, <laughs> right. but it does miss perhaps a bigger picture where overall the ratio between the Chinese and US arsenal, um, and at least the capabilities and the distance missiles can travel, mm. um, is not looked at so much like that part is missed. And so the, um, the military balance project we got going on now, um, highlights, um, highlights well, quite visually sometimes looking at the range of missiles and it really paints a picture where you see that, um, there is this, there is this lopsided relationship. Um, you know, we, we know about it or at scrap. We talk a lot about it in terms of spending, in terms of the amount of, um, arms spending that, um, countries like the U S, um, right. put towards weapons. Um, but the lopsided, uh, ratio between, you know, some states and others, and for example, the U S and China in, in those weapons and how then that kind of makes you think that there is a lot like the the us for example is in a position of a phenomenal strength um from which this fear or this um kind of public anxiety that we we have or we experience um does does not need to be there and it's a position of strength which can allow for negotiations um to happen um in many ways it's it's not it's it's um yeah it's it's, it's negotiating ne negotiating from a position of strength um which um <laughs> sorry, let's just, let's sort of no don't worry at all but that's that's um, but it brings up a, a a point um that isn't that fundamentally the reason why nations do develop weapons programs because if we look at right. i mean because you know i'm deep into north korea if i look at north korea from a standpoint you can argue right. that one of the reasons there are a few reasons but one of the reasons they developed an expedited their nuclear weapons program is so that they can have a seat at the negotiation table with right. the united states and other allied parties as well so that mentality works right. both ways it encourages development of weapons as well so it's, it's becomes more tricky <laughs> i don't know yeah um, no, no I, I mean absolutely so i i guess in in that sense um you like your point is that um when it comes to uh the kind of the fear that people have towards the asia specific, specific mm -hmm. theater and the ideas we have about it um i mean yeah in, in many ways an argument perhaps can be made that that plays into um, kind of North Korea's favor, um, you know, maintaining the sense that they are they are a big threat, and um, and they definitely are a threat. 
Um, but in many ways, that then can neglect um, the, the role that you know the surrounding states also have mm. in um, allowing that threat to proliferate. And at the end of the day, no solution or no good solution is going to come from retaliatory action right. to North Korea's threat. Um, that just results in proliferation or more uncertainty. If you're, for example, talking about first strike capacities or um, counter-strike capacities or you know, redeploying nuclear weapons to the Korean peninsula, what all of this really is doing is um, increasing the insecurity that North Korea feels mm. um, and then increasing the proliferatory actions they take in response to that and again you know that is um, in many ways the south korean government and the surrounding mm. states um in the interest of their own survival and their people's population safety have a right to respond to that but what it takes us further and further away from is um, discussions or creating breakthroughs where um, we can then reduce the risks that this this is really you know creating, which are immense, and then the the risks here and the impacts of you know even small scale uses of these weapons, um, well weapons of mass destruction, um, and then even just the the hotspots of conflict, like creating a, a new conflict in the region, um, as we've seen in. Um, will have a global impact and a very like harmful global impact mm. um, which is not in anyone's interest and which will be like ultimately very like, cost, like have, a, have a significant cost mm. and, and so we, we we need to turn away from this this essentially the building up too much fear and and i guess high using this as an as a reasoning um to then you know bring more like weapons into into the game um strengthen um the security capacity um instead it's important to look at those yeah more creative solutions and different paths no i certainly agree absolutely absolutely we want the end result to ultimately be some form of peaceful negotiation or agreement without being sucked into the general discourse that's going on surrounding right. it so Right. Uh, Phil, give me one second. Someone is at my door. Um, I'm just going to quickly go grab yeah, that yeah, and no pick problem. up in a second. So, sorry, yeah, no sorry. sorry about that. Um, I am expecting someone, but I think it was the kids. <laughs> I live on a very uh, family street, so okay. I think they may be doing... Oh, that's fun. Yeah. Well, outside the front of my house, it's covered in chalk. They uh, draw all over the pavement, so but it's, it's quite cute. <laughs> so, anyway... Oh back on track yeah so well i, I guess to, to build off what we were saying it, it taps into this, this deeper issue of um a fixation on weapons begets more of a fixation on weapons so um the the kind of the attention that like is given towards let's say like proliferation um in many ways now manifests itself not in a kind of enlarging the debate about it and um, an international 
you know, solidarity against, let's say, the proliferator, um, but rather it means that you know those states that have the capacity to increase their defenses, increase their own security, um, do so, um, and that then creates a split within the international community in many ways, um, and is something which, particularly, you know, in um, I guess the context of the well, the Russian invasion of Ukraine mm. is something that um, states and the European Union, for example, and I guess um, to an extent the, the global north needs to be aware of mm. Um, mm. that at the end of the day, uh, this kind of way of approaching threats using even just strong, like uh, harder power or um, just really bolstering the current um, security measures that are already in place will only alienate them further um, mm. when they don't need to as well again we're talking about this position of negotiating from power there's um, there's so much capacity already there already um, that is sometimes glanced over um, and one thing you find in in diplomacy is that there are always ways to achieve a mutual uh, well <laughs> i guess again it depends whether you're from the realist school of thought perhaps or not but right. there are there are really there are ways to achieve an outcome which and in fact the only way to achieve an outcome which will be lasting um, and successful is for both sides to be um, supporting of it for it to be their win and right and this is an approach that should be should be taken when it comes to um, arms control and disarmament, and it's it's something that that can be taken. Right. Hmm. And you'd hope that cooler heads would prevail in that matter. But then it brings up another question, and and I know right. that you mentioned that you're going to be starting a series next week in conversation uh, with um, arms dealers or in the yes. arms um, industry, yeah, arms industry, and. Of course, situations that we're in now, and we're looking at right. Russia and Ukraine, and we're looking at this heightened sense of urgency that's portrayed in the media, is incredibly beneficial to them, um, right. because that's how they make their money. And yeah. whilst they may kind of, I've always, as a money maker, relish in this current circumstances, yeah, it's not like it's obviously not ideal, and that shouldn't be the case. So, do you believe that? And our government's kind right. of allowed that to happen. So I guess the question I'm trying to pose is, do you believe okay. that coming to this understanding between nations is a possibility in our current time, whilst these companies exist and whilst the certain people in power exist in, in different you know, UN member states and we're looking at America, France, England, um, you know, Australia, for example, uh, Japan and Korea all have deals with, with the United States in terms of arms uh, trading. Um, do you feel that come to this resolution is possible relatively soon? And when I say relatively soon, I mean the next 10 years. Do you think people will come to the table and be able to talk about it? Or do you think it almost requires a changing of the guard, in a sense? A big question, I know. I mean, Massive question. When you, when you say out of interest, when you say changing of the guard, are you talking about you know, a, a revolution in the... In Not the, necessarily a revolution. <laughs> I mean, I mean, that's one way of viewing it, but I'm thinking almost like um, a new youth coming up in, and filling these positions. Okay. 
you know, when we look okay. at people at, at SOAS, for example, a lot of people in our master's course, yeah. they are ultimately going down that path of working in these areas. And the people who are involved in Scrapped, Scrap are also mm. looking at working potential policy areas as well. And yeah. when I'm saying changing with the guard, I'm yeah. talking about these people uh, who are kind of coming up. A really interesting point and something which I personally would, would like to and hope to develop more in my own um, you know, professional life and my workings with, with Scrap is the role that, yeah, careers play in creating change and how, I mean, at the moment, there are some very big um, arms producing companies that exist in the world, um, of course, bloodlines, because a lot of them are also produced, you know, aerospace or naval um you know uh, products which are not for um you know uh, conflict purposes um but rather civilian as well so, mm -hmm. so that's difficult but these these companies have a lot of attraction because of, of things like salaries and opportunities for young people and and so really the question to be asking is how can we create those opportunities um in in disarmament and either in the sense of you know technology well, so again what we'll be looking at in our second webinar in our in conversation with the arms industry is the role that technology can play in disarming um, particularly demining um, but then also encouraging um, young people to consider in their careers the impacts the companies that they're working for will be working for have on the world and um and in many ways you know, with with climate, you see that that really is starting to happen, and and you know, whilst I personally think it's yet to be manifested more strongly, a lot of surveys that, um, well, at least I've been seeing, show that a lot of people are aware of these issues, whether or not the company is changing tact yet, um, or like aware of this. Companies are aware of this, and so you know, developing. Um, internal policies or changing strategies depending on you know employees preferences um, a lot of people are looking to create positive impacts in their work um, and and so really here there is that opportunity for creating um, for creating that change of what we take for granted as being as being the normal um, ultimately it's it's very difficult because the current the, the world that we live in um, and some of the um, trade relations and economic relations, business relations that exist are very integrated and ingrained in um, the everyday workings um, of, of, of the power, I guess. Um, and ultimately, you know, because these, the, the better these companies do or the more they rely on, for example, government support um, and government contracts, the more power or capacity they have and the more reason they have to to ensure that status quo keeps going on and um and so really that's why a lot of uh, a lot of disarmament tends to focus more on like the grassroots level mm. calling people out but that's difficult because ultimately i think there's only so much um you know that that can do there's another part there's another side where you're looking at inside these these organizations what are people actually thinking what are they aware of in terms of the impact that they're creating where what are they going towards um and i think engaging with all of those stakeholders is something which needs needs to be done like more needs to be done um of um and 
And then it's, again, by creating a wider awareness within you know, the corporate level of society, political level and public space, um, then that's when, you know, bigger movements do, do start to happen. And the question is, you know, will, will the change happen quickly enough to, um, to, um, to kind of, you know, mediate or remediate the, the, the impacts that it risks having, um, and the kind of the, the state of, um, you know, crisis that we see happening happening now um, in, in general and, and, you know, the kind of deadlines that are looming around, you know, 2050 or, or beyond. And, um, and, the, and yeah, will, will, will these changes happen quick enough? Um, and, and I think one of, the, one of the constructive ways that we can create an acceleration is by looking at the stakeholders um, and recognizing the um, the um, intersectionality of you know disarmament with uh, some of the other you know humanitarian movements um, or you know, uh, some of the other not humanitarian necessarily like the, some of the other movements such mm. as the climate movement yeah um, and and how they can work together how they uh, recognize that they're working towards the same same goal at the end of the day and and, and i do believe that uh states you know in their pursuit for survival at some point if not already um will recognize this need in states and i talk about states actors you know let's say like the um, like political elites that you know generally you know are in those positions of power to dictate national policy and the direction of the country, but then also, you know, at the corporate level, all these actors recognizing at some point that um, these issues need to be addressed. Otherwise, you know, everyone's going to be negatively impacted by it. Um, two differing levels, of course, but, you know, it's about reaching this critical, critical, you know, will. Um, um, yeah. Essentially. No, I think you've really just hit the nail on the head with something there because I'm from, from my understanding, then China and the US, uh, in a sense, would have the most to lose if any conflict was to happen. Because they're uh, specifically, let's focus on China for a second. Because if we look at yeah. China and, and its its blow up over the last couple of decades and how they've so yeah. rapidly developed as a country, hands down, a lot of that is due to their established trade networks and the businesses that operate inside them internationally as well, and the hardship they've gone through and, and the rapid progression they've had to go through to establish themselves as who they are now. Right. And they have so many dealings with so many different nations. And China, in a sense, is, is almost oligarchical because every company in China is is hmm. almost attached to the CCP. So right. if there was to be any sort of conflict in that region that would hamper or disrupt their current uh, trade obligations or trade dealings with other countries around the world, it would cripple their, their economy. And the same right. can be said for America, whether we like, you know, whether they like to admit it right. or not, and the same for the UK, whether we like to admit it or not, we rely significantly on that area of the world. And if there was right. to be any kind of conflict, it would hamper all economies um, who are involved with any nation that's involved in that in said conflict. So, if common sense were to prevail, <laughs> you would hope that people would see this and establishing some kind of agreement 
which limits the potential for any outburst or conflict yeah. in the region and be that through right. through a treaty like scraps approach treaty i would in right. the long run would certainly benefit that nation's growth and right. yes you would see a downturn in terms of the revenues generated through weapons production but as you said there's still civilian weaponry and, and we're not proposing to cut all weapons production just to have a limited right. yeah. amount and, and nor would that really be possible in many ways no, okay, well, exactly about, like, you know i mean but that, i think that's the key thing with the some with the summer movement in general is mm. is like helping people recognize that it's not just like an idealist de you know, revolutionary concept which mm. is trying to like fight you know the, the tsunami um mm. fight the tsunami with an umbrella as it were mm. it's it's um it, it's 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 a video it's a way of being in some ways it's a way of understanding um where we can be in terms of international and also human relations um it's it's understanding that the current approaches of, and the current um dynamics we have with each other you know don't have to be the only way we, we do stuff it mm. doesn't have to always be um um you know yeah about about conflict mm. no absolutely absolutely i think the mentality that's kind of left behind been left behind since the cold war has really lingered for too long in a sense yeah and i think industries have developed around it and there's always going to be pushback because no you know no no one is very good right. at accepting drastic change but if there right. was some kind of agreement that came to place it would in the long term benefit economies because it would allow for better trade and um mm. there would just be a shift out of those industries that don't fit into that new world so to speak but that's happened many right. many times over in the past and right. we're almost seeing it happen now in a different sector which is with artificial intelligence so yeah. it's yeah as i said you'd hope that common sense would prevent with this regard <laughs> but yeah we would have to see interesting yeah. very interesting so back to scrap and the and, and arms control um yeah. i know we said we'd talk about this um recently dan's uh recently published paper on right. um based on the back of of ideas that help ukraine today and the limitations set for missiles and their distance that they can travel um right. quite not necessarily a new idea but something that i don't think a lot of people think about um if there were limitations because it coincides with the whole idea of disarmament which isn't complete disarmament it's just a limitation on weapons and weapon capabilities to minimize risk how would you see how how could you see this being potentially adopted or how could you see it help in the grand scheme of things a reduction in ranges of arms and whatnot um i i guess yeah, and maybe this is like an, an undercurrent of, of my thinking, and maybe something I've you know alluded to before. But really, this um, kind of what is the 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 final goal that that we're working towards, really? And you know, do states want to remain in kind of a, a perpetual state of of tension? Which again, you know, the idea is that that's just what states do. They want to keep growing. 
um, until they, um, you know, until they're like completely secure. And ultimately, what happens is then you get clashes between two states that are, are growing the the Diocles trap, um, two states that are trying to ensure their own security. Um, but it it really it really doesn't have to be like that. Um, mm-hmm. And and um, in many ways, that is something that can be created and controlled. That kind of narrative um is something that 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 is is human made um but essentially um to go back to yeah to go back to the point about the 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 weapons reduction it's kind of I, i guess it takes the logic of of conflict sometimes like to to its to its basics in that mm. sense it's this idea that instead of having these uh, these weapons that like have, or like, instead of having this like incredibly wide range of damage that can be done, you're really just narrowing it down to uh, to the kind of you're you're narrowing it down to this kind of um, line that it's drawn. You're like, okay, we have a certain capacity to defend our national sovereign interests, which in many ways are one's borders, Hmm. um, rather than this need to project power um, over a a massive, large scale. Um, And and so if you're trying to um, deal with your immediate security issues um and you know ultimately you know there you want you want this kind of like core defensive um you know guarantee and then you've got you've got your you know your, your short range missiles and stuff like that but um the idea is that you know you can't really be engaging or solving conflicts with with weapons like at the end of the day you're not going to be able to solve violence by stationing weapons all over different parts of the world you know um i mean you create a state maybe of of temporary um shock perhaps um as you know or you you create like a you create this quasi situation which is kind of like the whole deterrence theory crazy situation where it's kind of like yeah we're we're safe because we're protected by these there's a huge amount of weapons that exist um when actually you really have to ask yourself like you know how what is that really safety mm. and why do we need to get why do we need to be at that stage um anyway i mean what is it that you as a state are trying to do um and and i think going back to something you said like about the, the cold war still having its impacts here it's yeah in many ways these ideas of pushing oneself beyond one's own borders um in, in security ways is it's it's still it's still prevalent um and and is is old school uh because mm-hmm. it's you know in many ways the world is not big enough for for big egos almost <laughs> right um, yeah so i guess quite literally by shrinking the distance these missiles have you are kind of bringing like forcing almost, you know, a, a kind of, a, yeah, like creating this boundary really and saying like, uh, look, I mean, this is, yeah, you created these weapons of destruction 
for your I don't know, for your security concerns. Um, okay, well, keep them keep them away. Like, not don't make them everyone else's problem. You know, it's right. It's, it's not it's not everyone else's problem to bear. So that I think um, um, I, I quite like that side of the idea, and and in many ways, you know, it's it's um it's not it's not um it, it's an easy bargaining tool you know there's so many there's so many weapons out there and like more many like nuclear weapons especially um i guess when i say weapons i'm talking a lot about nuclear weapons here um and their capacity to destroy the world is you know many thousands of times um you know there's, there's so many weapons out there already you know getting rid of these um is like an easy bargaining tool here which which in many ways does a lot of there's a lot of good or can do a lot of good. And it, it's just about starting to put those lines out there and saying, hey, look, like, you know, th so this 100 kilometers thing, or 150 kilometers, is kind of just bringing things back to their logical conclusions. But, you know, generally reductions um, are, a, you know, a, these conversations, um, you know, we're surprised sometimes that they're not happening more often because it's almost as if the ego of just the numbers is getting in the way of that kind of the, the practical needs of, of mm. security of that state. Um, no, and absolutely. Yeah, so, so, I mean, I guess I'd recommend to listeners that you, you know, check out more Scrap's website and some of the statistics that we have um, on access there and, and more in general, definitely always remain curious about, um, you know, like how many weapons there really are out there now. And you, you'll always be surprised. Um, the number just seems bafflingly detached from the security needs of countries. Um, and so this, this idea of the, the 100 kilometers, 150 kilometers just brings it down to, um, like if, if we're talking about like the realities of warfare in, in many ways, again, like back to Ukraine, like what we're seeing at the moment is not some futuristic cyber warfare, cyborg warfare even, but, uh, Many ways, you know, World War II style conflict trenches mm. again, and um, and this, yeah, there's many ways a demonstration that, well, first of all, these like, big missile nuclear weapon missiles that states have, you know, they they deter to a point, um, and in many ways, like their role is. Um, not that productive on the battlefield especially you know you're not if you're taking over a country i, I guess I, i'm just yeah speaking like formally here but if you're trying mm -hmm. to take over a country i mean yeah sure uh, or at least parts of it like yeah you don't want to start deploying nuclear weapons there because ultimately it becomes an, an inhabitable wasteland and, and you kind of realize the the futility of um of, of the sheer amount of these weapons, let alone their own, um, their own role. Um, so, so yeah, that is right. a longer, longer expression, but, um, no, but it's certainly true, particularly, uh, you know, emphasizing the end result with nuclear weapons, um, particularly with the, uh, development of thermonuclear devices, which are hundreds of times more powerful than what we ever saw being used at the yeah. end of world war two. Um, yeah. it just begs the question about why would someone want to do that if it's not for ego and their warped perception of perhaps a legacy that they want to maintain. And I think right. to put emphasis on the restriction again of, of 
range of potential weapons it also forces people into the position of oh you have to deal with this this situation now diplomatically humanly uh, through communication yeah. instead of threatening to point your long-ranged weapons at them um and if that was to come to fruition i think as we said at the beginning conversation generally helps resolve most issues when you when you're forced to have that conversation sit down and, and talk to people right so yeah um, i mean yeah um and and of course it can't always but of course it can't always come down to that conversation right. at some point um and you know it is it's also very much the unilateral decisions made mm. by states mm. um and and that is that is something that you know is not you know scrutinized if it's mm. not scrutinized that that of their own you know national uh, like uh, political level um will like and should be scrutinized um by you know the rest of the international um, mm. community um and and yeah i mean you know pressure put on these leading actors more pressure put on these leading actors um like what the p5 the p5 for example you know more pressure put on them and the <laughs> yeah. role that they play in it um and you know really um really focusing on that um um the, the damages that they they cause and, and not getting um again not getting too swept up in the idea that these weapons you know are you know are here to stay and were like are, are inevitable and have like some really great function i mean it's they have a very limited function at, mm. at the end of the day um mm. and no solution really is going to be gained um from well, no constructive solution is really gained um when when their possession still exists um and and but but you can gain this but like you know again the, the reductions of weapons disarming is a direction it's an upward spiral towards finding um a to finding those like peaceful resolutions um so it's it's just part of this whole big process um which comes back to lots of different actors different levels of responsibility from each one but um but but yeah yeah no i i agree with you and i think that's a also a great place to end it um because we are running out of time but also what you've just said really is a, is a great ending kind of statement as well which kind of hammers home um you know scrap and and what they're trying to what we're trying to achieve um yeah no i mean so definitely follow this scrap conversation more on the, mm. the scrap progress um I, I definitely recommend people to as i mentioned many times before check out the website absolutely um, scrapweapons.com you can find the articles that we discussed yeah. today uh and several opinion pieces and other papers done by uh researchers in the space and uh volunteers and students who are doing their postgraduate studies as well um yeah fantastic right thank you very much phil great conversation answered a lot of my questions particularly at, at the beginning uh, i had a lot of questions uh, and at the end we got into a really good kind of conversation and i could really listen and understand what you're saying which is fantastic so thank you very much for coming it's been a pleasure we should do this more we should do this more i do need to do this more <laughs> yeah absolutely all right thank you very much everyone and goodbye